Well, good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? I don't, yeah, I don't know what, when I ask that, I'm like, is anyone meant to respond? Or, but Karen usually does, so that's all right. <laughs> Great. Yes, well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew, uh, studying the Gospel of Matthew. We've been on it for over a year, well over a year now. And um, as I've said a number of times throughout this series, it's really, really important to go through and study the life of Jesus, isn't it? It's something that we should do regularly on our walk with God, just to go through and study the life of Jesus, to study his miracles, to study the impact that he had. See, one of the dangers for us as Christians is that we can become too over-familiar with the Gospels, can't we? We can become too over-familiar with the miracles, with Jesus serving, with his death and his resurrection, we can become so over-familiar that it becomes a little bit second nature to, to us, doesn't it? So it can be like, oh yeah, Jesus healed people, he opened blind eyes. It's, you know, we can think of it like it's nothing. It can become too second nature to us. But in reality, we need to be constantly um, and continually astounded by the things that Jesus has done. We need to be excited and reminded about the impact that his death and resurrection has on our day-to-day lives. We should never lose sight of that. We need to be asking ourselves regularly, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for us? And hopefully as we've been going through uh, Matthew's gospel, you'll agree that he really is, right? Jesus is enough for us. Okay, so on with today's passage. Uh, We're well into the last week of Jesus' life here. So uh, we're heading right towards his death on the cross. And within Matthew's account of Jesus' life, this story is taking place on the Wednesday night before the Last Supper happens on the Thursday. All right, so we're on the Wednesday night. And the story's taking place um, just outside Jerusalem. And it's Jesus having a meal with some of his closest friends. All right. If you like, we can call this the second last supper. All right, that's what we're looking at today, the second last supper. So if you've got your Bible, let's open it to Matthew 26. If you don't, the words will be on the screen or pick up a Bible at the end. We've got them on the table outside. Let's read Matthew 26 and we're going to start in verse 6. So while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper... A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. All right, so here we have a beautiful, beautiful story this morning. And I want to talk to us this morning. Our theme for this morning is worship, okay? And we've had a great time of worship this morning, haven't we? It's been great. And we can learn a lot about worship from this passage. And I've got three points for us this morning, three things for you to remember about worship. We're going to look at devotion. We're going to look at extravagance. And we're going to look 
at sacrifice. Okay, those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. But before we start, let me just share with you my first ever experience of Christian worship. I, just, I feel it's important that I set the scene with my first experience of Christian worship. See, a lot of you know my story, right? I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up going to church. Um, I went to a Catholic school, Catholic primary school, which meant that my understanding of worship was three things. One, it always had an out-of-tune piano. <laughs> Two, if you were lucky and it was a special occasion, you'd have a flute. And thirdly, your songs always, always, always had actions. I don't know why. So I never, didn't really uh, engage much with worship, but then when I was about 13 years old, my friend Sam invited me to a Christian youth group, and uh, we went along to this event called Harvest, which was a big youth worship event, and it was there for the first time as an outsider looking in that I saw charismatic Christian worship, and it was weird. It's so weird. I'm going to have to tell you about my first experience. It was weird. Like, why were people jumping about? Why were hands in the air? Why were people falling over? Why did you need so many guitarists? Where on earth was the flute? I was so confused. And I remember just kind of being in that worship tent and me and Sam looking at each other and being like, let's get out of here. And at the earliest opportunity that we could muster up, we got out of there and vowed never again to engage in weird Christian worship. And that was my first view of worship. And thankfully, over the years, my view has changed a little bit about Christian worship. Although I still find it tough sometimes. You see, if we're not careful, worship can become about us, can't it? It can be us judging other people and thinking, why are they doing that? Why is she doing that? Why is he doing that? Or it can be self-consciously looking, am I doing the right thing? Should my hands be higher? Should I have two hands up or one hand up? If we're not careful, we can slip into the thought that worship is about us rather than the one that we're worshipping, rather than devotion to Jesus. Famous worship leader Matt Redmond says this. He says, in the end, worship can never be a performance, something you're pretending or putting on. It's got to be an overflow of your heart. Worship is about getting personal with God, drawing close to God. Listen, if you hear nothing else this morning about worship, if you learn nothing else from this passage, hear this. Worship is about our personal relationship with God. It's about a life surrendered to him. It's about a radical heart set on fire by God that longs to give him thanks for that. That's what worship's about. So let's have a look at this story in a bit of context here. This account uh, is found in Matthew's gospel, but it's also found in John's and Mark's gospel. And we're able to paint a fuller picture of what's going on by comparing the three different accounts. And what we know is this meal was happening in the house of someone called Simon the leper. And we don't know anything about Simon the leper other than he was called Simon and at one point he must have had leprosy. Okay, that's all we know about Simon the leper. We can be confident that he's not got leprosy now because otherwise he wouldn't be allowed people around his house. So we know that he's not got leprosy anymore. He would have been sectioned off on his own if he still did. So he was clearly healed. 
He was clearly made well from leprosy, but the nickname still stuck. Like if you get a nickname like Simon the leper, that kind of sticks, doesn't it? You don't just become Simon again, like you're Simon the leper for life, aren't you? And the most likely thing that happened is that this is one of the lepers that Jesus had healed earlier in the gospel, who'd had his life transformed and had decided to become a follower of Jesus. Also, in terms of context, there were probably about 17 people at this meal. It was a proper Middle Eastern feast. Our Iranian people would be like, just 17? But there were 17 people at this meal. We had uh, Jesus, his 12 followers, Simon the leper, and then we had Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who were friends of Jesus that we learn about earlier in the gospel as well. And what we see in this story here is that the group are all sitting round after their meal. And Jesus is reclining at the table. He's sort of chilling out, lying down, probably stuffed full of kebab and other Middle Eastern treats that he's been eating. Jesus, you know when you've had a good meal and you just chill out and lie down? That sort of Sunday afternoon feeling. Jesus is relaxing. Probably in the back of his mind, he's aware of what's going to happen to him in the next few days. So he's enjoying time with his friends. And as he's reclining at the table, as he's relaxing, Mary comes over and pours a very expensive jar of oil over his head. And let me tell you, Jesus is full of grace. Because if someone pours a jar of oil over my head, I'm not going to be blessing them. I'm going to be cursing them, I think. All right. But Jesus, uh, Jesus, wasn't. Jesus was full of grace. And this oil was probably a product known as nard, which was imported from India. It was very, very expensive. It was a, a beautiful smelling oil which grew on little tiny flowers, all right? And uh, this jar of oil itself was probably a family heirloom that belonged to Mary and Martha. It was worth a lot of money. It was probably the most valuable thing that Mary owned. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. See, it would have been usual to sprinkle a bit of oil as a sign of respect on an important guest. But to tip a whole jar, that would have been unheard of. This was crazy stuff that was happening. And that's what led to the reaction from the disciples. But before we look at the disciples and look at the rest of it, I just want to think about Mary's reaction. You see, I think it's important to say that Mary's reaction of tipping that whole jar over Jesus' head was completely logical, to be honest. You see, what we know is that Mary absolutely adored Jesus. We see this story, um, we see it in, in Luke 10 actually, which was a chapter we heard from this morning a bit further on. There's a story about Jesus being at Martha and Mary's house. Do you know this story? Martha's running around preparing everything and cooking and cleaning and Mary's just chilling out at Jesus' feet. She loved him. She was devoted to him. And we know she had plenty of reason to be devoted to Jesus because we also know Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead, don't we? So Mary completely uh, adored Jesus. She owed him everything. So this reaction was completely logical for her. This wasn't a strange thing she was doing. This was an outpouring of her devotion to Jesus. And there's plenty that we can learn about our own attitude to worship by looking at Mary. See, first and foremost, we need to be clear that Jesus is worth our devotion. 
Do you agree with that? Jesus is worth our devotion. When we recognize the impact that Jesus has on our life and how much we have to thank him for, that shapes our worship. You see, when we come to worship God, we aren't just singing some songs or reflecting on some distant being who's got no influence in our lives. We're coming to someone who is our deeply personal Lord and Savior. We're coming to someone who has changed our lives. We're devoted to Jesus because we're aware that he has completely changed our lives. We worship him because we know him personally. Let me give you an analogy here, okay? It's, it's a World Cup starting today, so I've got to talk about football, haven't I? Let me give you a football in analogy, all right? Stick with me here, okay? First of all, I want you to imagine for a second that you know nothing about football. You've never watched more than a handful of games. Some of you don't need to imagine, do you? <laughs> but uh, imagine that, you know, you just don't, couldn't care less about football. You could witness the most amazing goal ever scored. It might have the most amazing tactical build-up, the most amazing finish. It would be the greatest goal ever, but you wouldn't have a clue, would you? You would maybe just stand there and be like, oh, the ball's going in the net. Great. Like, you wouldn't know, would you? It would be meaningless for you. Okay? Now I want you to imagine that you're a huge football fan, but this goal is scored in a game that doesn't really mean anything to you. Imagine it's scored in today's game between Qatar and Ecuador. All right, we've got, a Qatar- we've got no Qataris here, have we? Okay, we've got a Qatar um, player on the screen behind us. Now, if you saw this goal, you might not care about the teams, but you would appreciate the beauty of the goal, wouldn't you? You might well say, great goal, lads. What a great finish. You'd be clapping your hands. You'd be like, yeah, that was a good goal. There'd be a little bit of praise, but it wouldn't be much more than that, would it? Now, imagine this same goal was scored by your country in the World Cup final, all right? For argument's sake, I'm going to say England, might well be Iran, or Ghana, Kobe, or another country, but most likely England, isn't it, all right? This goal scored in the World Cup final, and you would be, (laughs) or Ukraine, maybe, you would be cheering and joyful and celebrating. It would feel amazing because this is something you've got a connection to. This is your nation. You'd be jumping, you'd be praising this goal. One final time, imagine that it was your son who scored the goal. (laughs) He scored in the World Cup final. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you jump and celebrate and maybe cry and phone up your friends and tell them and leap around your house because it would mean something to you, wouldn't it? It'd be deeply personal. The child that you love has scored the goal which has won your country the World Cup. Wouldn't that shape your reaction? Listen, that's how it is with worship. We celebrate who God is. We celebrate what God has done because we know him personally. We've experienced his presence personally. We know what he's done in our lives and that leads us to praise. So we're devoted to God in worship because we know him. Let me give you another quote this time from another famous worship leader. Who better to talk about worship, right? This is a a guy called Chris Tomlin. He says, worship isn't a feeling that you wait for, but it's a choice that you make. I love that, right? We choose to be devoted 
to Jesus. We choose to worship him. And the result of looking at worship like that is that we can come to God and we can choose to worship him regardless of what is happening in our lives. If we understand that worship is a choice, no matter what's happening around us, we can still come and worship the King of Kings. We could be in the midst of total disaster and despair, or we could be in a season of great joy. But in both positions, we've got to make the choice to worship God. You know, we don't just come to worship all airy-fairy and be like, hey, I'm going to worship God. You know, we come and we choose to worship God. Worship involves us focusing our minds on who he is. We choose to focus him. You know, quite often that can make sense in the hardship. When things are going wrong, we can understand choosing to worship God. But when things are going well in our lives, we still need to choose to worship him. All right, the second thing to talk about is uh, extravagance. See, the second thing we see in this story, and I promised I would come back to this, but this is the sheer extravagance of the act that we see Mary perform. Now, extravagant just means out there, costly, over the top, kind of going all out. You see, this wasn't, as I said earlier, just her sprinkling a bit of oil on Jesus. This was her pouring over a very expensive precious jar of oil, which would have been worth around a year's wages. I mean, that's a lot of money, isn't it? That's like going to buy oil from, I don't know, an expensive shop. I'm trying to think of an expensive shop. It's like, it's expensive, isn't it? This was a big deal. And we know it's a big deal because of the reaction of the disciples. Why this waste? You could have given this money to the poor. It's a, it's a good reaction, isn't it? I mean, I understand that reaction. Why are you wasting the oil? You could have given the money to the poor. If we read John's Gospel, we see that the ringleader in this outrage from the disciples is, in fact, Judas. And Judas would agree to betray Jesus that very night. This may well have been a thing that tipped him over the edge. You know, on a surface, it was a ridiculous act. It was completely over the top. I guess it was a bit similar to my experience as a youngster seeing those guys worshipping for the first time. It looked over the top like, just calm down, why are you jumping about? It's just singing. But now, knowing God, knowing what I know, I believe that Mary really got it here, didn't she? She's expressing her love for Jesus. And that love leads her to give up the thing that is likely so precious to her. She gives it up like it's nothing because that's exactly what it is in comparison to Jesus. Do you know, there's something about extravagance in our worship, giving it all to God and really showing what God is worth. There's this famous hymn that you may or may not know. It was written back in the 1700s by a guy called Isaac Watson. It's called When I Survey. And one of the verses of the hymn goes like this. I think I've got it behind you on the screen. It says... Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's so true, isn't it? 
We can go over the top in our worship to God because he's worth it. And that's why maybe in this church you'll see people getting emotional sometimes. Letting go of their inhibitions, dancing, waving flags, whatever it is that people do. Because they're showing extravagance to the God who is worth it. And you know what? God loves our worship. He loves to be worshipped. God loves to hear our devoted worship and our thankfulness to him. We should never forget that. So what am I saying? Feel free to get excited in worship. Maybe you're from a different type of church background. Maybe you're from a type of church that sits in pews regularly. If we had a choice, we'd get rid of these pews, wouldn't we? We'd have more space to dance. Feel free to dance. (laughs) Feel free to dance. Feel free to clap. Feel free to jump around. Feel free to cheer. Feel free to do whatever. Extravagant worship is really important. All right, just to make comment on the disciples' reaction and Jesus' response, because it's a big part of the story. Obviously, the disciples had a valuable point. The jar of oil was worth a lot of money, and it could have been sold, and the poor could have been helped. That all is true. But what we see in this story is that the disciples didn't really have a noble concern at all. They might have sounded like they were saying the right thing, but really they were just being judgmental. If, like John says in his account, Judas led the criticisms, we knew his motives were bad. He was well known to be stealing money from Jesus and the rest of the disciples. And Jesus sees right through the false niceties from the disciples. He sees their real motives. And in verse 10, he says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. There's nothing like being told off by Jesus, is there? This is a proper telling off. Do you know what? We can easily misread what Jesus is saying here. Could he be saying that there's no point in helping the poor because it won't make a difference anyway? Is that what he's saying? There's nothing you can do to help, so don't bother anyway. Well, of course he's not saying that. He's saying the opposite. He's not downplaying serving the poor. He's saying that there will always be opportunities to serve the poor. There'll always be opportunities to serve those around you. That won't change. He was actually quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, um, which is Moses giving the law to the Israelite people, Deuteronomy 15, 11. It says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. That's what Jesus was quoting. So yes, there will always be opportunities to serve. We need to be aware of that. There will. And this church does a great job of doing that. But let me just say, serving the poor should never be turned into rigid regulation. It should never be seen as something that we do because we have to. That's what the disciples kind of were getting at here. Serving needs to come out of our devotion to Jesus. Did you get that? Devotion, uh, serving the poor isn't something that we just do because we have to. It's an outpouring and outworking of our devotion to Jesus. You see, if not, we end up just being Christian activists whose sole aim is to make a difference in the world and fight the powers. You've met people like that, haven't you? 
The whole aim is to make a difference in the world, so much so that they lose sight of Jesus. Do you know what? I wonder how many well-meaning people would say, first and foremost, we exist to serve the poor. People would say that. We exist to serve the poor and needy. We in re- when in reality, they should say, we exist to worship Jesus, first and foremost. And out of that comes all of these other things. Out of that comes all of these other things. We exist to worship him. I don't usually give you a lot of quotes, but I've got a few today. This is theologian Wayne Grudem. He says, worship in the church is not merely preparation for something else. It is in itself a fulfillment of a major purpose of the church, whose members were created to live to the praise of God's glory. Listen, worshiping God isn't just part of our Sunday mornings. It isn't something that propels us out to get onto the real work of serving the poor or making disciples or impacting our community. Actually, worship is who we are. It's what we're created to do. We're created to be people who worship God. We can sometimes feel like we have to be doing something for Jesus all the time. Our worship needs to look like something. We can't just worship God. No, no, we need to worship God by doing something. But really, Jesus is calling us to focus on him, to love him, and most importantly, not to miss him. That's what Jesus is saying vividly here. He's saying, don't miss me. Don't miss me. Addressing Mary's act, he says she's done a beautiful thing. He loves her worship. But he's saying to us, he's warning us today as a church, don't miss me. All right, the final thing to say about worship this morning is that it includes sacrifice. All right, there are two parts to this, but first of all, if we look in the story, we see that Mary totally gets the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. Mary gets it. In fact, it can be argued that Mary is one of the only people in in the Gospels who seems to accept Jesus' coming death on the cross. The disciples kind of half got it, but never really acknowledged it. But what Mary did here, it was an act that was usually reserved for when people had died. She was anointing Jesus' body. And she was doing that because she recognized, she understood what Jesus said about his upcoming death. This was a prophetic action that she was doing as she was worshiping God. Just a side note here, by the way, we need to leave space in our worship for prophetic actions, don't we? We sometimes push them on one side because they're a bit weird and we don't like them. I find that. I like to push them on one side. But we need to leave space for the prophetic in our worship. We also try not to make it so weird. But we need to leave space for prophetic in our worship, right? Mary understood the sacrifice that Jesus was about to take in dying on the cross. He was about to take the sins of the world on his shoulders and her response to that was to worship. Her understanding of his sacrifice was to worship. As I said earlier, a true understanding of Jesus will always lead to worship. The other thing about sacrifice is found in the second half of Jesus' response to the disciples. He says, truly I tell you, 
wherever this gospel is preached in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying that the sacrifice of giving up this expensive perfume will be remembered. This is an important point. Jesus is saying to us that no sacrifice made for Jesus is ever forgotten. Do you hear that? No sacrifice made for Jesus is ever forgotten. There's a cost to following Jesus. Just this week, I was chatting to someone about the cost of following Jesus. As we were doing some leadership training, it was going through the cost. There was a cost to following Jesus. Yes, it might not be expensive perfume, but it might be a career. It might be time with your family. It might be finance. There's a cost to following Jesus. We will all, in our walk with God, have to sacrifice something in order to show our worship to God. But Jesus is setting a precedent here. He's saying that no sacrifice that you give is ever forgotten. Who needs to hear that this morning? The things we do faithfully for God, he remembers. What an encouragement. Do you know what? Just on Alpha a few weeks ago, I was reminded about a famous story of a soldier who was dying on the battlefield in, in World War II. And as he lay there in the trenches, he was, he was breathing his last breaths, he was dying, and another soldier came over to him and said, what can I do to help you? So this soldier who was dying gave him a name and address written down, and he said, can you go to this man back in England and tell him that the things that he taught me as a child are helping me to die now? So this other soldier goes and eventually finds this man back in England he, he tracks him down, and uh, it turns out this gentleman was actually the soldier's old Sunday school teacher from when he was a kid. And as he shared this, he said, the things that you taught this man helped him to die in peace. This guy started to cry. And he said, you know what? I gave up teaching Sunday school years ago because I thought it wasn't making any difference. I thought it wasn't having any impact. But when he heard this guy had uh, taken all that on board and it had helped him in his moment of need, this guy was challenged. See, it turns out that the sacrifice of giving up his time and serving these young people had made an immense difference, even if he didn't recognize it. Because Jesus never forgets a sacrifice. Let's let that encourage us this morning. Look, worshiping God with our whole lives is going to involve recognizing that there are sacrifices, but even despite those, we still choose to worship the Lord with gladness, as we're encouraged to do in Psalm 100. See, that is one of the things about worship. We worship God when we serve him. How we serve him, how open we are to serving him, will show a lot about our hearts and our worship to him whether that's putting up tables on Sunday mornings, looking after children, welcoming people on the door, or indeed singing in a worship band. However we serve God will show our worship to him. However we sacrifice our time will show our worship to God. And that sacrifice will never be forgotten. 
Who would have known that a prophetic act from Mary, someone devoted to Jesus, probably spontaneously would come out of her, uh, coming out of her joy, would be spoken about to this day? Who would have thought that if she did it? Because Jesus never forgets a sacrifice. I'm going to end in a second, but I want to encourage you right now, don't get frustrated about serving. Don't spend every day focusing on the cost or thinking about what you're missing out on by serving God. Think of it as worship. And when you do that, when you change your mindset in that way, you find the joy in it. Look, if you're new to Jubilee, I want to encourage you to get involved and serve. Get involved and see how you can use your gifts to worship God through serving. There's lots and lots of ways to do it. Serving is part of our worship. Can I get the band up, please? That would be great. I'm just about done. How do you think we're going to end this morning? Worshipping, right? You'd think so, yeah. Yeah, we're going to end this morning worshipping God. We've talked a lot about worship, and that is the most appropriate way to end, isn't it? Showing our devotion to the King. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of worship. Can I encourage you to focus on who God is? Focus on the things he's done in your life and worship him for that. Be devoted to him. Recognize his sacrifice. Be extravagant in your worship. Give him your all because he's so worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that even just thinking about your sacrifice for us on the cross just blows our mind, Lord. We've got so much to thank you for, Lord. You've done an amazing work in each of our lives, Lord. You've worked miracles every day in each of our lives, and we want to thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that we can never be, we can never run out of words to say to, to, to worship you, Lord. There's always things to be thankful to you for. So I want to pray this morning, Lord, as we've been reminded about being devoted to you, Lord, would we be devoted again afresh to you, Lord Jesus? Would we look at you with fresh eyes of faith and thankfulness of all that you've done in our lives, Lord? Yeah, we love you so much, Jesus, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.